right. New day, new series. Going through the book of First Peter. Now, question as we get started. And be honest. You're at church. It's Sunday. It's the Lord's day, so don't lie. Uh, how many of you, and I suspect there should be maybe two or three tops, because going at the other two services so far, we've only got one or actually the one person recanted and said it's not true. Um, <laughs> how many of you, you would say the book of First Peter is your favorite book of the Bible? See, nobody. That's what I expected. I said maybe two or three. Now, if I were to ask like about Psalms or Proverbs or like the Gospel of John or for sure Philippians, there'd be at least be somebody like, watch, how, how many of your favorite book of the Bible is Philippians? Well, like the whole front row. Yeah, tons of them. Okay. It's like Gospel of John. We would get those things. But so far, pretty much no one has said First Peter. Now, if you're an academic type of person, you're theologically minded, you're probably inclined to say, like, the book of Romans is your favorite book of the Bible. If you're, uh, if you got charismatic blood in you, you're going to say the book of Acts. Because, like, boom, ah, man, Acts is where it's at. If you're the practical type, you're like, you know, hey, I just like down to get to the nitty-gritty, the nuts and bolts, keep it real practical. You're going to say the book of James or Proverbs. You say, I start off every morning with a proverb. You just love it. But first, Peter, nobody here. Now, what's interesting, though, is if you ask people who are in regions where the church is persecuted, where you are persecuted for being a Christian, the book that will usually immediately rise to the top is 1 Peter. So 1 Peter is loved by Christians who are persecuted. And so what's interesting is this series is going to be both extremely relevant but simultaneously distant. Extremely relevant because he's going, Peter's going to be teaching us how to live in a world that is hostile to Christianity. Where it's distant from us, though, is that if we're honest, we're not being persecuted. And so somewhere in the middle of that, we're going to discover why this book is incredibly important for us to be discussing. Now, before we dive into it, there are some things about Peter and his world that we need to understand. Peter, his entire world is shaped by something, and that is the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures. He lives, breathes, and thinks through the lens of the Old Testament. Those stories fill his imagination as an adult, and they filled his imagination from the earliest of years in his childhood. The Old Testament is his narratival world. It's the lens by which he sees reality through. And you're going to see that all throughout this book. All of the vocabulary, the images, the allusions, the metaphors that he is going to use are all traced back to the Old Testament. And so it's like there's hyperlinks and cross-references. Peter says a word that has a simple definition, like up in Webster's Dictionary, but you have to understand that word in its kind of context to the Old Testament. So think of it like this, with hyperlinks and cross-referencing. You ever go... Uh, we'll call it like a Wikipedia binge. Like you look up something on the internet. Wikipedia is the first thing that pops up. And everyone likes to act like like Wikipedia, I know it's not perfect, but get some decent information from there on a certain given topic. Say you're looking up Tolkien, okay? You're gonna look up Tolkien, the author of Lord of the Rings. And what happens is you look up Tolkien and you you click on his name and then you're gonna read about his life and then you're gonna read about books. You click on books and all the books he's written pops up. And you're going to go to Lord of the Rings. 
Click on Lord of the Rings, and it's like a whole world opens up, and there's tons of hype, links everywhere to every character, to every story, and you click on, say, uh, then you go to Two Towers, the middle movie, because the middle movies and trilogies are always the best. Remember Empire Strikes Back? Really good. Return of the Jedi, little campy. Empire, dark, brutal, real. That's where all the good stuff happens. Two Towers, really good. Then you're like, Two Towers, a whole world opens up, and then you're like, oh, man, I love that movie. I really like that dude with the ponytail who's, like, super good at bow and arrow and stuff. That guy was awesome. So you click on Legolas, and what happens? A world opens up. Like, there's t- it's not just like Legolas is a character in this movie. He has a story, a history. He's grounded with this giant background, and he has a people. He's elvish, so you click on elves, and you're like, a whole world opens up. Thousands of articles and links to other things. You realize that... Tolkien created a language for these people. It's crazy. And so worlds begin to open up at each level of the hyperlink. The, Old Test- the New Testament is very similar in that it's constantly cross-referencing and hyperlinking other places. And you kind of have to understand those backstories to understand exactly what something as simple as one word might appear to mean in the New Testament. So we're calling this series... Sojourners and exiles. Let's take the word sojourner. What's a sojourner? Webster's Dictionary, it's someone who's nomadic. They live in one place, but they know they're not going to be there long, and so they pick up their stuff and move to the next place. They're there for a little while, they pick up their stuff and move to the next place. They're on a journey. That's what it means in Webster's Dictionary. But if you're saturated in the Old Testament and you grew up breathing these stories since early childhood, when you think about people who go from one place to another looking for their final home, who do you think about? The Jews at the time of the wilderness wandering in the book of Exodus. So you go, oh, so could Peter possibly be trying to mirror the experience of the New Testament Christian with the experience of the Israelites wandering around in the desert. But then you have to ask another question. When Israel was wandering around in the desert, where were they coming from? Egypt. And why were they in Egypt? They were in slavery and bondage in Egypt. How did they get out? God divinely intervened and miraculously delivered his people. So they go from slavery and bondage in Egypt to wandering around in the wilderness. But they have an end goal, right? Where are they going? To the promised land. To the promised land. So what is Peter doing here? Something as simple as the word sojourner is running parallel with another story. In Israel, they were delivered from slavery and bondage in Egypt wandered for a brief moment, although it's 40 years in the history of things, a brief moment, ultimately to get to their final destination, the promised land. As New Testament Christians, Peter is telling you, you are a sojourner. And yes, there's a Webster's Dictionary definition of that, but more importantly, there's an Old Testament definition that's filled with the story. You have been delivered from slavery and bondage not from Egypt, but from sin and death. And now you are like a pilgrim, a sojourner. This place is not your final home. You are on a journey to the promised land of promised lands, God's kingdom, heaven. 
It's the word sojourner. It's filled with all that information. Now the word exile, because he says, First Peter calls Christians sojourners and exiles. Like, so what does it mean to be exiled? It's like when, you know, you turn 18 and your dad says, yes, that's, you've been, yes, okay. But what does exile mean for a first century Jewish person? Exile is a mega theme of the Old Testament. The exile occurs in 586 BC, roughly 600 years before the time of Jesus, when Israel is destroyed, Jerusalem is destroyed, the temple in Jerusalem is destroyed, and the survivors, the Jewish people, are taken captive to Babylon, where they live captivity and become servants to the people of Babylon. So what is exile? Exile is when you are in Babylon, a place that's not your home, and you're trying to remain faithful in that context. Now here's another layer. What is Babylon? Is that a literal city? Is it an actual place? Is it a country? Is it a people? Well, yes, because the Babylonians came in and destroyed Jerusalem in 586 BC. That's a historical fact. However, even after historical Babylon is destroyed in the Bible, they're always talking about Babylon. Because Babylon is any culture government system ideology that in wickedness sets itself up before God. So there's literal Babylon, but then there's spiritual Babylon. And even in the book of Revelation, talking about the end times, it's still talking about one day God's going to destroy Babylon. It's like, well, Babylon got destroyed a long time ago. And historically, Babylon was destroyed by, by King Cyrus, the Persians. What's going on? No, spiritual Babylon lives on. This is what we always joke around here, but this is what reggae music gets right. Reggae music, like every song, is just chanting down in Babylon, like over and over again. <laughs> because it understands Babylon is not necessarily just a country. It's any ideology, culture, government, system that raises itself above the knowledge of God. So what does it mean to be an exile in Babylon? It means you are a follower of the true living God in a foreign pagan land, trying to figure out what it means to be faithful in that context. So Peter is writing to you as a Christian, as a sojourner and exile. All of those stories, all of those themes are all wrapped up into just two words. Peter wants to write to you and teach us how to remain faithful in Babylon, knowing that we're just wandering around in a place that is not our ultimate home. This is how hyperlinks and cross-references work. Now, I want to show you a, a visual representation of hyperlinks. This is an image that's trying to graphically represent all the hyperlinks or cross-references in the Bible. So every time the Bible references itself or alludes to itself or quotes itself, that is a line on this graph. Now, it's really hard to see. Obviously, can, you can see there's many lines, but a couple scholars put this together, and there's roughly 67,000. But I can tell you that there's actually more than 67,000 because these are just all the ones that they've identified. But there's going to be even more than that. And so this is the way the image works. It's actually quite beautiful. The bottom kind of white squiggly lines that you see that they're really tiny bars, it's really hard to see, but those are bars, and each one of those white bars at the bottoms represents a chapter in the Bible. 
sort of every chapter of the Bible, there's going to be a line coming out of it that's going to connect to another chapter of the Bible where it's either quoted or alluded to. Now, you can see that there's a lot, but let me like zoom in on just a tiny spot of this to show you. This is just a small portion. Maybe this is the book of Ruth. And all the times the Bible refers or alludes back to something. This is the book of Genesis, first 20 or so chapters, zoomed in. And you can see just within the first 20 chapters, there's, I mean, I don't know how many little tiny lines there are. Depending on how good your eyes are, you just see like one color of mushiness. But there's actually little tiny lines there. And so it's like, oh, this is Genesis 1 where it says, in the beginning. Well, then we got to draw a line to John chapter 1 where it says, in the beginning. Because Genesis chapter 1 says, in the beginning was God. And John says, in the beginning was the word. So you see the connection. At minimum, 60,000 of these connections. And in the book of 1 Peter, they're everywhere. They're everywhere. This is why reading the Bible regularly and consistently is so important, because you'll begin to understand more and more of the references and the quotes and the allusions, and you'll begin to understand the arguments that someone is trying to make. So for instance, in John chapter one, where it says, in the beginning was the word, you're going like, what does that mean? If you, if you haven't read any other part of the Bible, in the beginning was the word. But if you know Genesis chapter one, and it says, in the beginning was God, and by his word, his speech, he creates, you're going, oh, I see what they're trying to do maybe. So this is how it works. This is how our Bibles work, and this is how, in particular to us today, how First Peter works. Now, there's something else about Peter and his world that we have to understand. Peter was one of the 12 disciples. He was one, one of the, the three in the inner circle of disciples. And on the night Judas betrayed Jesus, Peter actually betrayed Jesus or denied him three times. By the grace and mercy of God, Peter repents and for the rest of his life faith, faithfully follows Jesus and leads the early church movement. Now, Peter on many occasions would be beaten and tortured for his faith and he would ultimately, in roughly 64 AD under Caesar Nero, be crucified and killed for his faith. Now, the historical data is, is solid on this. Peter was, was crucified under Nero. There's another piece of that story that probably happened, but we don't have enough historical information to say it happened with certainty. So it comes to us not necessarily from our first or second century quote, but from a fourth century quote by a church historian by the name of Eusebius. Some of you might have heard this, but the legend goes that as Peter's being led off to be crucified, that he asked to be crucified upside down because he found himself unworthy to die in the same manner as his Lord. So, this Peter, who knows about suffering, who knows what it's like to fall, to betray Jesus, and to be restored, this Peter who spent years alongside of Jesus, and this Peter who knows what it's like to suffer persecution, he wrote a letter to Christians about how to live faithfully in spiritual Babylon, a world that is opposed to the kingdom of God. So do we think his words might have weight for us today? You think we might need to listen to the wisdom of 1 Peter? Let's dig in. Peter, 
an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. That's an introduction. That's how you should greet. That's how all your text messages should start. <laughs> A full-on Trinitarian formulation. It's like the Father says hello, the Son is sanctifying, no, the Spirit is sanctifying you, and you, you better be obedient to Jesus Christ. He's king. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. So there's already one of these like hyperlink cross-references things. It says, to those who are elect exiles. Okay, what, who are the elect? The uh, Election means those who are chosen by God. Who are chosen by God in the Old Testament? Who's the chosen people? Israel. So what is Peter doing? He's taking this word elect, which means the chosen people, which has referred to Israel, ethnic Israel in the Old Testament, and saying somehow through the cross, even Gentiles, meaning non-Jewish people, have been brought into the family of God. You are now a part of the family of God that's neither Jew nor Gentile. Yes, even you, you, you former pagan Gentile, you are now the elect of God. You have an identity in the people and family of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, every so often this happens, and we point it out, but there are some of you who are grammatically, syntactically superior to the rest of us, and you were already bothered by this sentence. You were like full-on teacher mode. This should have had three periods in it. It should have been broken down, so it's Christian. We don't know what this preposition is pointing to. This is a run-on sentence. Now, bad news, really bad news. First off, this is the word of God. So you, as I always say, you need to lay off of us who maybe our grammar is not quite right because if this is the word of God, then certainly there's room for you know, some grace here. Now listen, this is just verses three through five. Here's even more bad news for you who just can't handle it. In the Greek, the grammar and the syntax actually probably, it's hard to decipher, um, but there is probably one giant sentence that goes on from verse 3 all the way to verse 10. So in English, they're trying to even break it down, and even this isn't good enough for most people. But it's like this giant sentence, a one giant thought. Peter doesn't do this often. Paul the Apostle does it all the time. Uh, go home and read Ephesians chapter 1, and you could tell, even though there's periods in English, this dude's just going like in the nut, and he's just like not ending the sentence, like run on sentence forever. What we're trying to do is break it down into sections so we could digest the whole, but understand that really verses 3 through 10 are one giant thought that all connects. I've underlined and put in bold the key points of this first section, 3 through 5. So what's going on? Peter is saying that you have been made to be born again, and you now have a living hope. And the living hope, this is critical here, is not the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's through, it's through. 
You've been born again. You have a hope, and the hope is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and it's pointing to something. So what's the end goal? What is the hope actually looking for, longing for, pointing to? It's pointing to an inheritance, your inheritance. And then there's a list of of adjectives. What is this inheritance like? It's imperishable, it's undefiled, and it's unfading. Where is it located? It's like he's answering like a three-year-old. You know, you know, three-year-olds, like my, my kids, there's this question, 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 question. It's like, well, where is this hope? It's kept in heaven for you. And, well, is it safe? Yeah, it's safe because it's being guarded. Who's it being guarded by? God, the power of God. So you've been made to be born again, and now you have a hope. And the hope is through the resurrection of Jesus, and it's pointing to your inheritance And this inheritance is guarded by the power of God. Now, ultimately, this is pointing to your final salvation. Oftentimes in in kind of English, we talk about being saved as if it's a past tense event. And there's truth to that. You were saved in the past. But the Bible will often talk about your salvation being saved as a future event. Because ultimately, you will be saved on the final day, the day of judgment. And so what Peter is trying to communicate is that even though your final salvation in the future is yet to happen, you have yet to go before the judge, in the present, you can know that the future verdict is secure because God is guarding this. Why is that important? Because when you're suffering, as these people are, when you know persecution, you know pain, you know loss, you need to know that despite my present circumstances, whatever I might be going through, whatever persecutions break out, whatever temporary problems I face, my final destination, my ultimate destination is made secure and guarded by the power of God. So whatever you're going through, this is true of you today, whatever suffering you might have in your life, your final destination, your final home, your truest identity is secure and guarded by God. Your future hope is protected. And that's incredibly encouraging to people who are going through a lot. So Peter wants to tell these persecuted Christians, man, this is the worst it's ever gonna get. This is the worst it's gonna get. Think about this. Whether your life is miserable right now or you have the greatest life you can ever imagine. If you are a Christian, this is the worst your life will ever be. If this is the best day of your life today, it's the worst compared to what awaits you. It's like, this is not even going to compare to what God has prepared for you. So whatever you're going through, you cling to that hope, knowing it's safe and secure by the power of God. In this, see, this is why it's, a, um, in English it's a period, but in Greek it's like, okay, he says that big sentence, and then it's modified. And in all of that, in this, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Peter assumes that there's going to be testing 
for believers of Jesus. This is, this is why uh, prosperity preaching just, you can't be a prosperity preacher and read First Peter. If you don't know what a prosperity preachers are, this is a type of preacher usually on late at night in TV, and they're, you know, they're asking for like, hey, if you send in $20 right now, I'm going to send you this little handkerchief. You rub it on your wallet, and you're going to get a raise. You know, it's like whatever you want materially, you just, you know, sow a seed of faith, and God's going to bless you materially. Peter has just said, the power of God guards you. Nothing could take you out. Oh, but you're going to suffer. You, you see that? Because true Christian hope is not a hope built upon material blessing in the present. God can do that, and he sometimes does. We've, we've all seen where God has blessed us materially in the present. But Christian hope is not based upon material blessing in the present. Christian hope looks for the heavenly reality, and we endure suffering in the present, clinging to that hope. And Peter would also say, the present suffering is going to show whether or not we remain faithful and thus show if our faith is actual, actually genuine or not. Which is kind of scary, right? Like, God will test you with suffering and there it will show whether or not your faith is genuine. Because make no mistake about it, there are plenty of people who are in churches today, who are in churches in this room, who if our faith was truly tested, we would be proven unfaithful. Because, you know, some of us are, you know, just raised Christians, so we kept it up. Some of us come to church because of our spouse. Some of us, maybe because it's just like, like a habit. But what persecution does is it kind of shows you who's truly faithful or not. And that's a scary thing. One of the things that the persecuted church has taught us is that when persecution breaks out, you'd be shocked about who remains faithful. Because, you know, they'll be like, there's the, the super leader of the church or the pastor is like, that prays a lot, reads the Bible a lot, but the second, like, real persecution comes, they, they back out. And then there's just some person who you think is, like, so spiritually immature, they don't know the Bible, they stumble around when they pray, and they go all the way to death for Christ. They just don't know. And I've seen that. I know people in this church who you think you're spiritually immature. It's like, I know you stumble around the Bible and, you know, if someone says, open up to the book of Deuteronomy, you're like, you ought to look in the table of contents. <laughs> but man, some of you in that same position will be the ones declaring Christ to your, to your dying breath. And there'll be people who know the Bible front to back who cower in fear. You just don't know. And so Peter says when testing, when persecution comes, it shows who's genuine or not. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of faith, the salvation of your souls. This is all we're going to do today. This is just an introduction. We're not going to dive any further than this. It's interesting about this verse, though, is that you have a people group who are sojourners and exiles who experience suffering and persecution, and yet they're described as people who rejoice with the joy that is inexpressibly filled with glory. It's like when Christ becomes your chief treasure, when Christ is that which you love and desire most, even if, your other even if the other circumstances in your life aren't all too great, the thing that matters most is still in place. 
and you can rejoice. Not because you don't suffer, you learn to rejoice in the midst of suffering. Because you cling to Christ. Now that's very difficult for us to do, if we're being honest. And there's a reason for that, and it has to do with one of the themes of 1 Peter, and it's kind of the main message today, if we can tie it together, is this idea of comfort and home. See, Peter wants to write to Christians as sojourners and exiles who know this place is not their home. But if we're honest with ourselves, somewhere along the lines, we got so comfortable living here that we sort of started, started to treat it like our home. I mean, this is reflected how we spend our time, energy, and money, and resources. We start treating this place as if it's our true home, not as if we're sojourners and exiles traveling to our true home. I mean, think about it. Come on, this is, America is the best. America, living in America is the best place to live. We have the greatest standard of living in history. People a thousand years ago could not fathom a place like this. And I make tons of jokes about this all the time, but I mean, it's worth noting. And it's like, we have freezers and refrigerators. Pretty much every American does. And, and I know there's some of us who are wealthy, and there's some of us who are on the bottom end of the socioeconomic scale. But even those, are, those of us who might be on the, the bottom end of the socioeconomic scale, man, you still have more than the average person did for 90% of human history. I mean, think about most people knew what famine was like at least a couple times in their life. Or they knew, hey, it's going to be winter, so better save every last spaghetti squash because that's all we're eating for four months. I mean, I'm exaggerating, but you get my point. And so somewhere along the lines, in living in a country where we have the greatest standard of living ever imagined or thought up, we decided to make it permanent residence. We got comfortable. We forgot, man, this, whether you're on a good day or a bad day, this is the worst it's going to get for you. If you're a believer in Christ, this is the worst. There's a joke that a pastor said, because there's a famous book by a famous pastor. Some of you read it, so don't, don't be offended. It's a good joke. It's called Your Best Life Now. And um, I forget, I think it was another, I forget the pastor, but he goes, the only way this is your best life now is if you're going to hell. Because if you're a Christian, this is not your best life. Your best life now is in heaven. It's true. You get that. Like, whether it's a good day or a bad day, man, this isn't, where is your final, where is home? And so, Remember, it's sojourners and exiles. We're supposed to be leaving Egypt because God intervened on our behalf and freed us from slavery and sin. And now he's giving us daily bread as we learn to walk with him and trust him on our journey to the ultimate final destination, the promised land, heaven. Now, right in the middle of Israel's journey from Egypt to the wilderness to the promised land, God gives them a warning. And this warning is not just to Israel, it's to the sojourners and exiles in 21st century modern America. This is what God tells Israel thousands of years ago, as they're in the wilderness. 
when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them. Okay, so he's talking to Israel. He's not just talking to Israel. When you have eaten and are full and have good houses. Who is he talking to? 13, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So when do you forget God? Not in the wilderness, but in the promised land. You can't forget God in the wilderness. Why? Because in the wilderness, you prayed that God would provide literal daily bread. If you're familiar with it, there's manna. It falls from heaven. If God doesn't provide food for them daily, they die. So you don't just forget about God because it's like, man, we sure hope God provides today. But when you don't have those things, when you're not worrying about food or water or shelter, it's easy to claim faith in Jesus but live like an atheist. You know, I've, I've, I've done this and tons of teachers have and you've probably done this too, but Jesus teaches us how to pray. He says, this is how you should pray. And then he teaches the people to like ask for daily bread. You know, and what do we usually do with that? We talk about, oh, Jesus is talking about like spiritual bread, like your spiritual needs. It's like, well, well, for those people he first said that to, who are an oppressed minority group under the weight of the Roman Empire, who were being taxed out of their minds into poverty, daily bread meant God, give us enough food to eat today. And man, you don't forget God when you're just praying, God, provide just for today. You ever been in those moments where there's like, there's like an immediate crisis for two minutes or even 30 seconds? Maybe it's like you see a car coming that's gonna hit you or something, and what do you do? God, please, 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 God. It's like you instantly, but when you don't got anything to worry about, You just do it in your own strength and you live your life like an atheist while claiming faith in Jesus Christ. And this is what he's pointing to. He's telling the Israelites in the wilderness, you didn't forget me, but when you get comfortable, that's when you will forget me. Now what's even worse than us being comfortable is Peter's writing to people who are persecuting. We don't even know what persecution looks like. We don't know what persecution looks like. And I don't think we don't know what persecution looks like because Americans and Western civilization is just filled with so many wonderful, tolerant people who just love to to affirm everyone's different viewpoints. I don't think that's the reason. I think we don't face pushback because we don't have any backbone. We We don't call sin, sin. We don't call evil, evil. Kind of cower in fear. I don't think we'd be physically persecuted at this point, but who knows, down the road. But you'd at least face some social pushback, maybe lose your job. Those of you who work in the technology industry in Silicon Valley, you know what I'm saying. If you were to be fully and explicitly centered on the good news of Jesus Christ, proclaiming that as much as you can in your workplace, maybe you wouldn't get fired, but when it comes to who's getting the raises, the conservative Christian most likely is not going to be the first on the Maybe, maybe, maybe you've been faithful and maybe you're like Daniel and have learned how to do that or like Joseph and learned how to do that, but it's very difficult. It's a difficult place to to work in. Now, here's another scary thing. Now, warning, a lot of you boomers in the audience are going to want to amen this right away. 
don't want to amen it, but I'm going to come back and get you too in a second, okay? Okay, we're going to hit the millennials at first, though, like really hard. And come back to you, boom, okay? I don't got anything but nice things to say to the builders. You guys built this country, man. So millennials and boomers tend to fight, so I just want to make sure we're all, the hate is evenly distributed here. There's a Barna study that was just done, polled tons of people. Barna Group is amazing at research. It's clear stuff. You can trust it. And they found that 47% of millennials who are practicing Christians, so if you're a millennial and you're practicing, meaning you go to church, like go to Bible study, 47% of practicing millennial Christians believe it is wrong to share your faith with someone with the intent to convert them. Now, some of you in the room think that, how could you even think that? And some of you who might be millennial be like, yeah, that'd be rude. My job isn't to try to convert somebody. But here's the hard-hitting truth. That means 47% of practicing millennial Christians think the Great Commission is wrong. The Great Commission says, go and preach the gospel. And there's actually an intent that you want people to follow Jesus. And so for boomers, that may be difficult because uh, millennials uh, tend to really care about what other people think. We've been brought up on social media. I make the millennial cutoff just by one year. So I was 1983, so I'm like millennial with like Gen X, like bilingual in that. Um, (laughs) So it's like I really like 80s music, um, but I also can get into like some of the early 90s stuff that all the other generations just know and recognize rightfully so that like the early 90s produced the worst music imaginable. Like 70s and 80s are just clearly superior, but I'm both both in those. Okay, so millennials, social media, we want want to be liked. We want to be liked. Our brains have been wired to desire, we want likability. So when it comes to preaching the gospel, we don't want anyone to, to look down at us or shame us. Now, boomers... Man, you don't, you kind of don't care what people think. You know what I mean? It's like boomer dads were the first to start wearing dad clothes. Like millennial dads, it took them like to their early 30s to start wearing dad clothes. But like boomer dads, man, the second that kid was out, you never wore a nice clothes ever again. You're just like, what? I want to be comfortable. I just want to be comfortable. And it's like your kids are like, dad, it's, it's, we're going to church. And you're, you're like in sandals, you know, you know, it's like, it's like, come on. They don't care. I'm a dad. So millennials get there. It just takes us like two or three kids. And then we're like, I don't care anymore, man. That's where I'm at. And I got three kids under four and under, man. I don't care. I don't care anymore. So boomers typically um, don't wrestle as strongly with what other people may think. Now, the, the danger of this is, though, and we see this all over the place, um, you, have a ten, you can have a tendency to become what we'll call like a Facebook evangelist. So you're like, I'm going to preach the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you just post offensive stuff on social media. It's like, but you're not pleading. Like, hear me on this. Posting on social media for Jesus isn't a bad thing. But I'll ask you this. When you make a post about how you're right, because you want to be right, are you pleading with God for the salvation of those who might see that? Are you saying, God... Man, use this 
Use what I have to say for your glory. Or is it just, man, I'm going to punk this person and show them why I'm right and they're wrong. You laugh because you, you've done it before. You know, we've all done it. We've all done that stuff because we want to be right. But like, there's a difference between being right and grieving the fact that you have friends and family who don't know Jesus. And are you pleading to the king of heaven and earth on their behalf? Lord, use my words, whether spoken or written. So all of us, every generation, has different issues when it comes to this. But we're all comfortable and not facing persecution. And so the rub is this. The Bible assumes that if you are a faithful follower of Jesus, you will face persecution at some point. 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, I don't, I don't think this is like universal law that applies to every last human individual. This is, in the Bible, there's like, a, like the Jewish Proverbs. They are generally true most of the time, but they're not true all of the time. So like in, in Proverbs, it talks about if you live, you know, a good life, you honor your mother and father, you'll live a long life. There have been children who have died lo- young who loved and honored their parents. So it's not a universal law, it's a proverb by definition, and a proverb by definition is something that is generally true. So this is generally true. There are some people who are faithful Christians who haven't been persecuted, but for the most part, if you desire to live a godly life on this planet, you will face pushback. Now right now it's not physical persecution in this country, but there's maybe some social pushback if you're a faithful Christian, and you'll feel that. And I'm convinced the reason why we don't feel more of it is not because secular culture is so kind and loving to you as a Christian. It's that we don't let any sparks fly, ever. And when we do, it's sort of that, I want to be right and prove how stupid your argument is. Jesus Christ is king, what's up now? Type of thing. So we have to learn to, in love, speak truth and with compassion pray for the people who don't know Jesus. And when we do that, and you're trying to live faithfully and godly, you better believe at some point or another there's going to be at least some pushback from family members, from people at work, from friends. Now, Peter's solution to this, and this is the solution for all of us today, is we live in a great country, great standard of living. You don't have to feel guilty about that. It's like, man, people worked hard to build this incredible life that we have. But what Peter would want us to do is remember that no matter how comfortable this gets, no matter how great your country is, remember your true identity. Who do you belong to? Where do you belong? And to whom do you belong among? Or I'll put it this way. Who do you belong to? You belong to a king, Christ Jesus, king of heaven and earth. You have an identity. You belong to him. And you have a country that you belong to. You have a kingdom. God's kingdom. Right now, if you're an American citizen, you have dual citizenship. Yes, you're an American citizen, but you're a citizen of the kingdom of God. And your citizenship in his kingdom will always be your first foundational and primary citizenship. Everything else comes second to that. This place is not your home. It is not your final destination. Who do you belong to? Christ Jesus. 
Where do you belong? In the promised land with your king. And who are your people? The family of God. That's not to say that earthly families and your tribes and ethnicities don't matter. They do. They matter a lot. But whom, to, to who do you most belong to? Jesus is walking and some of his followers say, hey, your, your family's coming. Your earthly, here comes Mary, your, your brothers, your sisters. What does Jesus say? My family are the ones who do the will of the Father. Now, you can misread that and be like, oh, Jesus doesn't like blood relatives and he's just being rude. No, no, no. Because when Jesus was on the cross, who's he thinking about? His mother Mary. He loves his mother Mary. But he's also simultaneously saying that the people of God are the newly constructed family of God made of neither Jew nor Gentile, male, free, male female, slave free. Now, why is identity so important? Because when you understand your identity and you're living out your identity, you will act differently in the world. Who do you belong to? Christ. He guards over you with the power of God. So when you're going to evangelize or tell someone about your faith, you don't need to be concerned. What will they think of me? What if they don't like me? I mean, what do they don't like you? Jesus Christ loves you. What matters to you? That a couple friends like you or the God of heaven and earth loves you and died for you. When you understand that identity, you act differently. You walk with a different confidence. And then where do you belong? In heaven with your king. So whatever earthly riches I can acquire, I should be using them for his kingdom, for his glory, because they're all fading and fleeting anyway. Christians use their time, money, resources, energy differently. If God blesses us materially, which he has, then we don't just greedily hoard that for ourselves. We say, God, how should I spend this? How much goes to my family? How much should go to my house to, to take care of my kids? And how much do you want me to put here? How much do you want me to do here? How much do you want me to do here? And then you have a people. You have a family. Even if your entire earthly family rejects you, which I know some of you have experienced. You are in the family of God, elect exiles, adopted into his family. And when you understand all of those things, man, you'll live differently. You'll understand you're a sojourner, an exile on a journey to your way to your father's house, and you'll just live differently. The usher is going to come forward, pass out communion. <coughs> So as we do this, I'd like us to focus on those questions. Are we living out an identity that's based on those three things? Do we know who we belong to? Do we know where we belong? Do we know to whom we belong among? Are we being faithful? Or have we become comfortable? Have you become too comfortable here? Have you forgotten the Lord your God? It's the easiest thing to do. I know I'm too comfortable here. Because you want to be you know, you want to be comfortable. Nothing wrong with wanting to be comfortable, but you need to let your, your ultimate destination decide how you spend your time. It is not in the wilderness asking for daily bread that you forget God. It's when you make it to the promised land. It's 
funny, like all of the technology that we've acquired has really removed the need to ever pray for any type of daily bread. Don't need it. So we can't fall to these temptations to make us believe that this place is our home. As the communion still gets passed out, we can all stand. It's a tradition we do here. The bread is the body of Christ. The cup is the blood of Christ. And just as we might stand and show respect for an American flag that stands in place of the country as a whole, how much more should we stand and show respect for the bread and the cup that stands in place of the body and blood of Christ? Peter betrayed Jesus. You know, communion often begins with on the night Jesus was betrayed. And you just think, Judas. But Peter too, and the rest of the disciples fled. But because God is merciful and gracious, and because his body was broken on our behalf, even when we are unfaithful, he remains faithful. And he calls us back in grace and mercy. And so as we eat this bread, his body, remember that when you are faithless, he is faithful. The body of Christ broken on your behalf for the forgiveness of sin. When we take the cup corresponding to the blood of Christ, it says to do this and proclaim his death and resurrection until he returns. And so, Lord, we ask you to give us courage, courage to faithfully proclaim your death and resurrection until you return, even if it might cost us something. Father, I thank you for everyone in this room. As we journey through this letter, I pray that it would convict us and shape us, but more importantly, set our eyes to, to fix on you, that we wouldn't treasure the things of this earth, we would treasure your son Jesus, that he is the pearl of great price and the treasure worth selling any earthly rich we have to get a hold of. And we pray um, for our brothers and sisters who are facing physical persecution all around the world. Encourage them and empower them to remain faithful in the midst of great evil. Lord, we recognize this place is not our final home, and may we look and long to see your son Jesus, our true king, and our true country. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go, knowing who you belong to, where you belong, and to whom you belong among. Amen.